Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which looks at the stories behind the pages of the best new food books on the shelves. It's about linking the thinking about what we eat and who we are to create a deeper connection with food. And this week I'm strolling through the back streets of Old Bombay with Navid Nazir, executive chef at Dishoon, to find the Irani cafes which inspired the restaurant chain. Partition is the bloodiest, bloodiest history we have. Like more than two million people lost their lives. But Bombay had the least amount of bloodshed, and one of the reasons we could kind of see that didn't happen in Bombay, that bloodshed didn't happen in Bombay, is because of these shared spaces. Dishoom was created in 2010 by cousins Shamil and Kavi Thakra, with Navid heading up the kitchens. But the book is a walk through a lost world, a nostalgic trip through something that isn't even theirs anymore since Bombay became Mumbai and Ashoom, a British Indian restaurant experience. I asked Navid if that's how he sees it. I mean, your few words um, are already making me uh, my eyes a bit watery. I mean, we missed the boot camp this last year, but had it not been for the pandemic, would have been in Bombay right now. And that makes me really sad. And you are so right. This is not our world anymore. I think in the book, we penned it down to make sure it becomes everyone's dream journey uh, it's almost sacred for us like going on a boot camp is like going to i'm a muslim by the way for me it has become almost like a trip to mecca uh, and i do treat it like that i mean it's um, it's it has become a dishoom tradition wherein i get to take uh, 30 40 odd chefs general managers people who joined dishoom uh, newly and they get to come to us to see this world where dishoom uh, take the inspiration from actually we, we come from there and uh, yeah, I mean, it's very nostalgic it, and it's it's weird because now I go every year, so I shouldn't be dreaming uh, um, about it every two months, but it happens. It's such, a, it's such an amazing world that you do miss it the moment you come back from Bombay. Yeah, it, and it's interesting that you call it Bombay. It's, it's Mumbai. I haven't been to Bombay since it was Bombay. I went last, <laughs> gosh, 1994. I think I was lo- I was there a long time. I mean, it's yeah, and it's very changed now. You've been here eleven years. Has it changed very much since the time you've been here? Well, first of all, just to kind of answer the question about Mumbai and Bombay, uh, it's controversial. By the way, if you are in Mumbai and if you call it Bombay, you might find yourself in a bit of a trouble uh, because <laughs> of the political environment right now. But just to kind of kind of specifically answer the question around the change in Mumbai, drastic changes uh, in last 10 years. I mean, we have seen it um, from going to the fantastic Muhammad Ali Road, which was an area crowded with street food, especially the Muslim heritage food is in that area. And that has been changed so dramatically in last, especially three, four years. That place is going through the most... Uh, expensive privately funded real estate uh, change by the Bori community and they're building all of these uh, they're just raising all of these big markets down to the ground and building these high rises with amazing flats good for them because obviously they deserve a better competition these guys live in Charles which yeah. uh, it's something which I would want to stay and I'm really happy for them but at the same time I also mourn the the loss of the heritage and the shops which we remember going to as a as a young chef and I remember that uh, that's not going to be around and they're very happy because they're going to move into these glass door shiny posh mall shops uh, but for me that rickety that smoky um, small eight-seater was the, the nostalgia and what's was the whole essence of going to Bar- Barahandi, for example, an amazing place. 
uh, and then last we went and saw him and he was so happy to to move into this new shop and uh, he's going to have glass doors and I could have more chairs and for me I was literally dying from inside that this is probably my last time to kind of sit in this this space which I yeah. kind of connect with so much yeah let's talk about these places because they're not actually part of your own heritage they're part of old Bombay, the Irani cafes and Shamal and Kavi take us on this wonderful route through their hidden Bombay, through the Irani cafes, which are absolutely steeped in history. Why Irani? That's right. Well, to be honest with you, there's no specific reason. But the fact is that these are the guys who actually came to India, I think probably in They've been coming, Iranis uh, or the Zorastians have been coming to India since 12th century. But I think the migration of the of the Iranians or the Parsis started probably 300 years back or in late 70s or 1800s. And um, they landed because of uh, persecution back in Iran and they eventually found ref- refuge in India. Um, Bombay was a city which was always attractive. It is a harbour city and you, I mean, if you are landing in a small boat, you probably end up in Gujarat or you end up in, in Bombay. And these guys um, had no money. When they, when they landed in Bombay, they had no choice but to start something of their own. And fortunately for them, um, a lot of the corner shops for Indians are not auspicious to do business. So it's funny that, that most of these cafes you'll find, they're in a corner shop. They said, you know, we are not superstitious, we'll take this shop. And they started these small cafes, which were a rage back in 40s and I think 1940s they were at the peak of their uh, of their life wherein they had these beautiful Bentford European chairs the marble top tables fans I mean they were luxuries back in those days unfortunately with the time passing they couldn't manage to keep up the, the repair work and keep, they didn't renovate it luckily for us unlucky for them because for me that's that's where I would like to go and that broken Bentford chair is, is what I connect with and they become such an integral part of Bombay life that anyone who could afford a big breakfast could go to Irani cafes because he could afford a chai and a bun maska or a, or a nakuri for 10 rupees. They didn't change their pricing actually, quite funnily, almost until 1990s. That's when they started to feel a bit pinch and started raising prices. And even today, I mean, if you go to Kiani, for example, you can you can have a breakfast for 600 rupees, which is a, which yeah. is a pound. So, and and it's not just money, is it? I mean, an Indian system is so caste-ridden, it's so segregated that you wouldn't you wouldn't possibly have you know a lawyer sitting next to a prostitute or a bricklayer next to a doctor. But in the Irani cafes, it absolutely was that because they're not so segregated in their culture. Um, that that appeals to you, doesn't it? As a Muslim, uh, you know, presumably, and having grown up in India, you would have that caste system steeped into your soul. How did that feel uh, as a legacy to bring to, to to London? You know, it's so unfortunate that even in 21st century, we have these traditions in India, wherein uh, even in some remote parts still exist. Bombay actually was probably the first city which broke down these traditions. It actually runs really deep. And the, the Irani cafes were not um, blind to it. Actually, they, they did make sure that they could welcome everyone. And they went at length to make sure they could accommodate it. For example, it's a really funny thing, but they used to have these red dots and a green dot just at the bottom of your of a chai cup. And they used to call it, can I have two red chais? Can I have two green chais? Green signifies chai for a Muslim. And the red signifies a chai for a Hindu. And that was a signal to the to the guests that, you know, we are keeping your, your crockery segregated. 
so that you don't have to worry come here i will make sure that we we respect your your traditions but they still welcomed everyone and i think one of the cafes olympia which is one of my favorite very famous for kima pao they have round tables and very commonly you'll find the four chairs occupied by four different people who don't know each other probably from different religion and i think that's so amazing to see that bombay made uh show and provided the opportunities for these people to mingle around i mean shamil tells the story that the partition is the bloodiest bloodiest history we have like more than 2 million people lost their lives the bombay had the least amount of bloodshed and and one of the reasons we could kind of see that didn't happen in bombay that bloodshed didn't happen in bombay is because of these shared spaces and irani cafe is actually one of the most uh, common ones i could think of where people could mingle around irrespective of which caste or religion they belong to yeah yeah Absolutely. It's interesting that you guys have brought this this vision of of somebody else's history to London, particularly now when we're talking in Britain about cultural appropriation. Uh you know, whose food is this? Can it be because it's from your Bombay? uh can are you able to own it in that way or have you been criticized? Well, it's a really heavy topic to be honest with you to discuss in 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 this um in this episode but um what i would tell you is you know parsis none of us are parsis but that's the food i grew up eating by the way so i spent 10 years in bombay and all i remember as a young chef is going to kiani for breakfast going to britannia for the berry pulao going to noor mohammadi for uh, for the saliboti or britannia to for saliboti So I consider that food to be mine and actually I learned that craft in in Bombay and I've learned some of these dishes from the masters who created those dish, dishes. So very confidently what I can tell you is this is one one aim I have as an executive chef is to push the food closer and closer to what you get in Bombay. And that's the aim I have every time I go to Bombay is to bring a little bit more Bombay to the dish menu. Whether it's tweaking the recipe or bringing a new dish to the, to the to the menu. And that's how we try and deal with it. I don't get this whole big thing of cultural appropriation. I think I, I don't get it to be honest with you because maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm naive and I don't understand the the nuances of of this discussion but for me it's very simple that's the food I've learned that's the food I grew up eating. I just want to make sure I I could provide people that food here. Yeah. I mean the whole book is a is a love letter to the Irani cafes of of your childhood. Um no, I mean, you know, I've had Theo Randall on a couple of weeks back talking about the Italian food that he cooks at the Intercontinental. Um you know, there's plenty of people who cook other people's food, but he talks about how it's the Italy of his childhood, his childhood holidays. Um he conjures up those memories and puts them on the plate at some, one of the best restaurants in London. Um it's a very interesting argument. um tell me about the chefs that you are able to have in the dishums which are spreading uh, i mean how many cities now have you got dishum in well, um, including the takeaways <laughs> uh quite a few actually we have presence in uh, birmingham manchester edinburgh uh, we recently went into cambridge and brighton with our delivery kitchens london obviously we have five restaurants uh, we opened covent garden which is the very first dishum we doubled it up uh, last year which is very unfortunate here hopefully we're going to see the doors open to that beautiful cafe which is obviously very close to my heart because that's where i started my journey so yeah i mean we 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 have um, a big presence now i mean uh, we're not big i mean we still a very close knit team as yeah. far as the chefs are concerned look i mean um, we have a big team now i have 
close to 300 chefs who work in Dishoom. They come from all different cultures and backgrounds. I have obviously a lot of chefs from India because obviously that's the cuisine we are representing and I need skills uh, to make sure we could replicate that food and, and create the magic. We obviously have a lot of chefs from Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, Pakistan. We have people from um, from the continent, from Europe. Actually, a lot of, lot of the chefs have started to now take interest in cooking Indian food. And I'm really proud to tell you that one of my best Romali chefs, he's a Romanian. And um, he was so keen to learn how to make Romali that I was totally blown away by his interest. And three years ago, he started as just as very simple tandoor guy who was learning how to cook breads. And now, three years down the line, he's gone through something called the Kitchen Academy. We have a structured program which you can come to and you become, become a trained Indian chef. And now he makes the best Romali in, in Dishoom. I mean, he gives some time competition to some of my well-trained Indian chefs who who who'd learned that craft in, in 30, 40 years. And he's learned that in three years. So it's a really fantastic mix of, uh, of, of culture and um, nationalities we have in the Dishoom kitchen team now. I'm really, really proud of it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about some of your food moments. Take us through the Akuri. You mentioned it before. It's an Irani cafe staple. It's the morning. Uh, tell us about it and, and why you chose that as your first food moment. Well, Akuri is something which is staple, especially for Parsis. Parsis love eating eggs. And I think one of the dishes which you'll find in any Irani cafe is the akuri. It's basically the scrambled egg with onion, chilies, tomatoes and fresh coriander. Uh, and that's my breakfast. That, that used to be my breakfast when I was in Mumbai. I used to go to Kayani pretty much every weekend when I used to get off. There used to be a book market. I used to probably buy an old book and go and sit in Kayani and have my breakfast and read that. So that's that's my memory. And when we were thinking and dreaming of the breakfast menu in Dishoom, it came naturally to us to actually do an akuri. It just couldn't be any other dish. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's a different crowd. I mean, I've only been to the Carnaby Street one at night when it's bustling. Well, in the old days before lockdown, I can't even imagine it now. But, you know, absolutely, you know, people packed in there and it's a real sense of celebration. It's a place you go to after a, a working day for something. You know, it's a mid-market restaurant. It's uh, it's it's affordable, uh, but the food is, you know, just full of flavour and people just pile on in there. What's it like at breakfast time? Interesting question. Um, the very first year, honestly, it used to be Shamil in the restaurant, having his sole bacon on roll <laughs> and myself in the kitchen. That used to be uh, our breakfast because no one actually probably understood the Dishoom breakfast or the proposition we were trying to present. For, for Indian breakfast, what, do you, what comes to your mind is basically dosas, parathas. And we were not doing any of that. So people just didn't get it. Indians didn't come because they did not have the parathas in Idlis. Yeah. And any, any Brits didn't come because they didn't, they didn't think that they want, they want to eat parathas and, and dosas because they thought we have that on the menu. So no one came eventually. Ten years down the line, if you're asking me how the breakfast pre-pandemic was, pretty busy actually. So we used to have a packed weekend in pretty much all our all our cafes. And that is the magic because breakfast is a meal which is could be a little bit more leisurely, especially on a weekend. You would want to have a slightly more relaxed breakfast. Mm. And unfortunately, in the evenings, the shoom gets really busy and you mm. don't have that sometime that relaxed meal uh, Although we, we try really hard to make sure you do. But breakfast is time and you can come in, you can sit in for a little longer. And it's beautiful. Like going to King's Cross in a sunny morning is magical because you have these beautiful skylights which the sun literally just slants at a very amazing angle. And you have a really magical cafe and you have your akuri sitting in it, having your chai. And, and that's place for me. Yeah. Take us to, in your second food moment, it, you take us back to Bombay. This is the Kima Pao that you mentioned before, which has Portuguese origin, doesn't it? 
It, it does. I mean, Portuguese brought power to Goa in nine, I think, fifteen hundreds, um, and then um, it eventually travelled to to Bombay. Obviously, naturally, with the migration, um, we we Indians don't eat leavened bread. By the way, we eat unleavened bread. I think roti is unleavened. And power was such a thing wherein it just took a. It has become a thing now today. If you go and tell any Mumbaiker that "pao" is not a um, Hindi word or a Marathi word, you might pick up a fight with him because "pao" is such a thing uh, in Bombay now that everything is is with "pao." Kima pao, what a pao, pao bhaji, and so on and so forth. So I mean, yeah, that's 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 very true. Kima pao has a, has a very interesting story as well. So kima pao is basically lamb mince, which is cooked with chili, coriander, herb, um, mint. Uh, spring onions, ginger, and garlic, and uh, you eat it with a pao, which is a leavened bread, almost like a dinner roll. It soaks up all the moisture and all the oil, and it's just just tasty. Again, there are a lot of people and cafes in Bombay who claim that kima pao is the best. And I can name few. For example, the Olympia kima pao I mentioned earlier is one of the best, and it's rated as one of the best. People go there. It finishes by 11 a.m. You won't find it if you go after that, and they do a really good job with it. But my favorite is another place, which probably is a bit more hidden, and not many people actually know about it. It's called Radio Cafe. It's in Crawford Market, and I'm sure you're going to pass by it and you won't notice it because it's just hidden behind some of these street stalls selling cotton um, bundles. It's a huge cavernous space. The moment you enter it, you're in a different world altogether. It's like Alice in Wonderland, and you have literally the the wall paint peeling off from it. It's smoky, and there came a pal is. Literally out of the world. The only problem is you have to eat it instantly because they eat um, they eat it with pow, but they add the lamb fat to it, the sweat to it, which if it is any 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 less than sixteen seventeen degrees, which it does get sometime in Bombay, it starts to congeal and starts to get um, clogged up, and that's not the best side. But trust me, it is one of the best kimo pow you can find. It's herby, it's fresh, it's minty. It's zingy and it, with a dash of lime, it's amazing. The kima pao and your third food moment, the chicken berry Britannia, are both on the Deliveroo menu now. I mean, Deliveroo, the biggest restaurant chain in the world without one single restaurant. How has that changed the Dishoom experience during lockdown? I mean, I'm very glad that it's in Brighton, I have to say. Right. Well, um, honestly speaking, when when the first lockdown came, it was the hell broke loose for the hospitality, and I I couldn't face my, my staff in in the eyes. Like I I remember having a chat with them in one of the cafes when we were planning a lockdown, as to what do I what do I do with them? I I knew their families, I know they have kids, I know they have mortgages, and I, I just couldn't guarantee the future to them. And delivery came as a rescue. I mean that that came to our rescue and literally saved hundreds of jobs for us and not even saving jobs actually since lockdown we've added 60 more jobs to the shoom portfolio so we hired 60 chefs and we haven't lost a single chef in this last one year and that's something which is absolutely mind-blowing for me forget about the business uh, we, we created i think it's just being able to make sure my team stays intact and i don't lose any one of them and we could survive and see the back end of this pandemic is what what I wanted, and and that opportunity was given to us by having these delivery kitchens. Uh, a lot of people call them dark kitchens. We we don't want to call them dark kitchens. We don't think they are dark kitchens. I think they are amazing places to work if you make them one. I think it's totally in the hand of the operator to make them fantastic places. We made sure that we we actually went down a day um, and we started giving people three offs. Traditionally, you get two offs in, in in a week, and we started giving people one more off to make sure they have a little bit more balanced life. 
So we created a proposition in the delivery kitchen, which people absolutely love and enjoy working in. So I'm really proud of these kitchens. And I think they have given us an opportunity and a lifeline to survive. And that's really, really important. Now, I've tried them and they are fantastic. Um, I haven't tried them. I mean, I've had different food in the in the cafes and the whole experience of sitting in the cafe and soaking up that vibe is a, is a very different way of of eating um how close to what you can produce in the restaurant and in the book because some of your recipes in the book i mean i made the black dal it took me four hours um you know how how authentic can can delivery be well first of all your four hours with bishum dal uh, i can only apologize i hope it paid (laughs) off and you had you had a fantastic fantastic product that's that's brilliant um in as far as the authenticity and delivery is concerned look it's tricky I mean, the food is traveling and some of the dishes are not meant to be traveling. So what we did, by the way, when we were planning to embark on this journey of delivery is we actually made sure that we only have chosen dishes which travel, which could travel well or better. I think that was that was the reason we didn't do delivery for a long, long time. And when we had to do it, we actually sat around. We made sure that we pick up dishes which can travel. Point number one. Point number two is we made sure that we cook the food exactly the way we cook it in cafes. So there are no corners cut to make sure it is good for delivery. We in fact kill that dish which needed to be compromised to be fit for delivery and we replace that with a different dish. So that's the approach we have taken. And now one year down the line, we have a team of chefs whose job is actually today is to create dishes for delivery. So we're now doing food development which is specifically done to make sure that we keep the authenticity intact we keep the quality as much as we possibly can intact and we give a really brilliant experience to the guests who is ordering it on delivery or or through delivery and those new delivery friendly recipes they are still coming from the irani cafes or are they made up by or they inspired by the irani cafes how does that work so there are two categories of dishes which are in the dish menu one is totally Bombay inspired or actually the dishes which come from Bombay. We don't cut any corners. We do it exactly as they are. The second category, which is a dish room invention. The simplest example I can give you is a bacon on roll. It doesn't exist in Bombay. It doesn't exist in Irani Cafe. But the way we actually think about that is that if you give an idea of a bacon butty to someone in India or in Bombay specifically, and you ask him, you know, this is a dish which people love eating in England. How would he go about creating that dish? So very naturally, he'll replace the bread with the naan. He'll replace the herb crest, watercress, for example, with um, uh, with the coriander, and he'll buy some bacon and he'll make a chutney. And that's how we went. went that's how we go about doing the food dev when we come up with new dishes. To answer the question around the delivery dishes, most of the dishes on the delivery menu right now are very authentic. So we haven't changed them uh, to make sure they are fit for purpose. Um, so. We are probably looking to go down that route in future when we come up with dishes which are totally original like bacon and roll and are really brilliant dishes for delivery. But I think that that process has just started and that excites me because the future looks really bright. You're very keen to make sure that your sourcing is as good as it can be. I'm always worried about delivery meat. Uh, I tend to avoid it uh, because I don't know where it comes from. You don't say anything about your sourcing you don't say anything about your compostable packaging uh why not and how do you source as well as you possibly can what about the chicken in particular right so basically um as i said delivery is exactly as it is in the shoe 
there is no difference no none of our supply changes we use exactly the same supply chain same method same processes in the kitchen to produce this food so that's kind of reassure you that if you love eating in the shoe you can be rest assured that the food you receive at home is exactly the same as far as the sourcing is concerned like i have a constraint when it comes to sourcing i have this dream of creating the food which is very close to bombay and as i mentioned earlier every time i go to bombay i try and push it further and further to bombay and that dreams bring some challenges like spices for example is a classical one then i came to england 2010 people told me oh you can go to a supermarket indian grocery store you'll probably get everything and i went there and i and i realized there's literally everything but none of that is good so there is a premade garam masala brilliant there's a curry powder cool and i realized when i just used it it's not good enough so we started actually doing our own spice mixes today in the shoe we make all our spices mix spice mixes in house from a garam masala to the kebab masala we grind and the reason is i don't think it's it's going to do justice if i start cutting corners on that the whole spices we source it directly from south of india where the best masalas come from we have a supply chain set up wherein i choose the the spices and they are delivered to me they ship to me and make and made sure that they have the freshest of the kind um meat obviously is all uk so we don't use uh, meat which is non uk um lamb obviously is brilliant in in uk i'm really 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 big fan of of uk lamb in and india can, you, and it's always sustainable because it's it always is, outside it is absolutely it's always outside then i was in india we used to use new zealand lamb and i the once the kind of thought passed my mind that shall i try it and it just the uk one gives a run for the money i think it's just no it's not even a close match um and it comes to chicken i think we go beyond the red tractor standards a chicken is red tractor but we go beyond the red tractor standards we actually go to the farm i go it go to farms myself actually in fact just before the pandemic we went to some of the farms we source our chickens from and we made sure the animal welfare is of top class uh, i'm working really hard to actually work with farmers and and the farms to make it even better i think that's the way to actually make the whole industry sustainable i you, you have to work with the farms and make sure you hear them you hear their challenges and what they they deal with and then together i think you can come up with brilliant welfare standard which will be a win win for all all parties mm. so it, it it's 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 really a great place to be in and i think always there is always work there's scope to improve and i think we always looking for that yeah so when you go to those farms are you checking that the chickens are allowed to grow slowly enough that they are outside that they're given space and light to act naturally yes so obviously there are some um, stipulated standards which all farm needs to adhere to some farms go over and beyond that actually and that's the farm we actually work with to make sure not even the standards are met they actually uh, they go beyond those standards and i think as you mentioned the 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 stock density how many days they can rear for how how much of the daylight they get um how much time they spend outside all of these matters uh, for the welfare of of the birds and i think i'm proud to tell you that our, our farmers are more conscious of it than actually i am because they know their birds so well yeah I mean actually I do think that you guys uh you know particularly you guys on delivery need to message that um I think that m- if people knew how f- factory farm chickens were kept and confined I mean you know it, they would they would not eat that chicken. Mm. Um Halim tell us why you chose this as your fourth food moment. Halim right I mean this is one dish which takes me straight back to my childhood. Um I'm a Shia Muslim and uh, Muharram is one event in 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 a year which uh, the Shia Muslims commemorate as the martyrdom of the grandson of Prophet Muhammad and one of the dishes which is cooked and actually distributed to the masses is halim um 
and the reason is very simple because it's such a nourishing dish it is basically the the wheat and the the lentils are pounded with meat most time lamb sometime beef is also used with a lot of spices and it is cooked overnight on big vats and someone is stirring it continuously and what you eventually get is a really savory umami porridge consistency meat dish which is so rich and so deep in flavors that it just the first spoonful it just nourishes your soul um, you squeeze a little bit of lime you have some crispy onions on top some chopped chilies and some fresh mint and coriander and you are in heaven and that's the dish which as i mentioned takes straight to my childhood and that's why i thought we need to have that dish in the book because i think it's a it's a slightly trickier recipe in all fairness and and i apologize to the listeners if they go and try halim and they find it really difficult to recreate <laughs> but i promise you if you make it once you definitely going to make it again because it's such an amazing dish yeah it's not on the delivery menu why why doesn't that make it Well that's a really good question and I think that is actually in fairness a good dish to be on a delivery menu and I think now you've actually planted that idea in my head <laughs> you might actually finally be on the delivery menu in in future Yeah I just wondered that you know it, it, to live, de- deliver to in lockdown seems a million miles away from the Irani cafes that you describe in the book um how how do you how do you keep that spirit But you know, forget the recipes, forget the 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 quality of the authenticity of the recipes, but the spirit of the Irani cafe. Well, maybe not actually. So let me give you a few examples um, of cafes or actually places which sells brilliant takeaway food. Britannia is actually one of them. Uh, I, I remember Mr. Kohinoor, and he passed away unfortunately last year, and we lost yeah. a man who is. who 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 was full of stories and i mean you speak to him and you get a piece of history um britannia pulao is one of the most famous dish which they used to sell and you they used to, they'll pack it for you i remember it every time my uh, my boss used to cross britannia she's going to south bombay she used to bring a big vat of of berry pulao to us in, in in the hotel we used to wait for her to come back another place which is brilliant by the way for um for packaged food is yazdani and it's a bakery by the way and even mr ambani who is the richest man in india and probably one of the richest man in the world he buys his bread from yazdani and it sells out pretty much like hotcakes i mean it's a brilliant place so they're not alien to um to packaged food in fact kiani by the way has these beautiful boxes which we have taken inspiration from in our packaging uh, and they sell these mawa cakes and biscuits and they go all over the world by the way Yes, you can't recreate that magic of sitting in Irani cafes with this fan swirling very slowly in a sweaty summer afternoon. But I guess you can you can at least give the part of the experience which is the food home. We actually send um, the incense stick to people at home so that they can light it and probably get a little bit of more dishum. And then sometimes you can buy a dishum CD and a vinyl and you can you can play the dishum music as well. One guest by the way went at length and he actually took the entire dishum delivery. Went outside the Dishu Medinbra and ate it there in lockdown. So I, I really salute to him for his for his spirit. So yeah, I I agree with you. It's hard to replicate that Irani cafe uh, spirit, but I guess that's the that's the challenge you have in delivery. Yeah, I mean, I think to finish, just a, a prayer. to the hospitality industry uh you know a nod to you all for being so creative uh it feels that necessity is the mother of invention you guys have absolutely run with it what's the future 
Well, as far as the prayers are concerned, we need it desperately. I think the hospitality is probably going through the toughest challenge of my lifetime. And I'm 42. Um, I don't think we're going to see, I hope we, we never see a crisis like this. What's the future? Um, look, I think as you said, um, the kind of innovation which has come out of this one year is mind-blowing. And that encourages me and enlightens me and actually excites me that the future is bright because hopefully it's in our DNA to eat together. Once we are over this pandemic, people are going to come out. They're going to be back in restaurants. So the restaurants will be full. And then we have these new businesses which have been created over these last one year, which I think some of them are brilliant. I think the meal kits which people have come up with, I'm a big fan of two or three of them. Um, and, and I think they might stay for 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 a life for forever now. And I think uh, who don't want a really brilliant meal kit on a Sunday morning uh, or a non roll to cook at home? I think being able to cook non at home is amazing. By the way, I, I hope you tried the the non roll kit, and, and and you probably know what what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, I would really recommend that you buy a non kit and and try at home because non is something which people always kind of avoid because they they think you need a tandoor for it. And I think, as you said, we've we cracked this whole process of making naan at home. Even if you don't have a tandoor, you can actually cook it in your oven. And that's amazing. That's amazing. And I think that, that makes me really excited about the future. Thanks for listening. You can buy Dishoom and all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at chillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my other news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when I'm still talking curries, this time with Spicebox plant-based street food queen, Grace Regan.